Well, I came to this church in um, 1999 with my family, and I came because I had heard from a friend at, at my school that some Redskins went to this church. <laughs> I wish I had better motivations than that, but that was honestly the reason why I came. I was a big Redskin fan. Um, but as soon as I got here, my, my parents are both believers, and I got saved at a young age as a product of their faithfulness and teaching the gospel to me. Um, but I had my first encounter with God here. And I remember uh, one Sunday, one of the elders of this church, Elder Clark, uh, I, I had a season of my life where I was depressed for really no seeming reason. Um, but I opened up to him, he prayed for me, and God lifted off that depression in that moment. I, rem I remember being in a fifth and sixth grade class and a missionary coming to this church and sharing with us, and the presence of God came in that room. And for the first time in my life, I felt the love of God, not just in my head, but in my heart. And I was transformed. I was set on fire by, by Jesus. I had a hunger for his word. I remember Pastor David Hermes, who's our campus pastor in Sterling. When I was in college, I went to Virginia Tech four hours away, and he would drive from here, visit me, say hi, eat dinner, do a Bible study with me, and then drive back in the same day. So when I look at you all and see so many familiar faces, I see an older generation who has literally raised me, spiritually speaking, who has taught me in Sunday school and been my, uh, served in 180 as when I was a teen. And I see an older generation here that is a generation of honor who has helped us get where we are today. And if it wasn't for your all's giving and your sacrifice and your faithfulness over the years, we wouldn't be in this place. But I also see a younger generation that equally excites me. It's a generation I would consider myself a part of. Friday night at the Andy Mineo concert to see a thousand young adults and teens and kids, college students going crazy for Jesus filled with passion, filled with hunger, filled with zeal. And my question today is a really simple one. Can these two generations walk together in honor? We as a church are a multi-ethnic, multi-site, multi-generational church. And I want to highlight that last point of multi-generational because we live in a culture that really is a de devoid of honor where two generations are, really have no respect for each other, have no interaction with each other. And I know I'm simplifying things today, maybe oversimplifying by saying two generations. I recognize there are more than two generations in this room. But just for the sake of simplicity, if you're somewhere in the middle, then you can identify with both the older and the younger, and maybe all of this will apply to you. But can the older generations walk together in harmony? What do each of the generations offer to each other? Would we be better served just to have a contemporary service and a traditional service? Or maybe, you know, have one of the cool hip youth pastors like Pastor Tellus start a church for just the young people and have the older people worship here? Or are we better served to worship together? And I think the Bible is very clear that God's family is multi-generational. His church is the older and younger generations coming together. And thankfully, there's a story in Genesis 
of a father and son that can give us some insight into how two generations can walk together in honor. So if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 45. We're going to read Genesis 45, 1 through 15, and then skip over to Genesis 49, 22 through 26. This is the story of Joseph and Jacob. It says in Genesis 45, verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Skipping over to Genesis 49, verse 22 through 26. This is Jacob, Joseph's father, speaking a blessing over him. And he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is a shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. In honor of our 35th anniversary and Pastor Brett's skillful alliteration, I have four Ps for you today. Joseph's pain, Joseph's position, Jacob's perspective, and the perfect picture. Joseph's pain. Jacob was one of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God made a promise to Abraham that was extended to Isaac and eventually to Jacob. And it was a a promise of blessing, of descendants, of land, that he would make Abraham's family and eventually, through Jacob, a great nation. And Jacob's name was eventually changed to Israel. And from his family came the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. 
Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was the 11th son. And at the time that this story starts in Genesis 37, Joseph is the youngest. The next son, Benjamin, who would be born after Joseph hadn't come yet. And Joseph was a pretty typical younger brother. He was anointed. He was a good-looking guy. And he wasn't afraid to tell people about it. He had a couple of dreams. In his first dream, he saw his brothers bowing down and worshiping him. In the second dream, he also saw his mom and dad and his brothers bowing down. And he, uh, he told his family about this dream. He thought that was a good idea. And it really wasn't because, because of his father's favoritism towards Joseph and because of Joseph's dreams that he shared, his brothers hated him. And they waited for a moment when Joseph was approaching them from a distance, they conspired together and said, here comes our youngest brother. Here comes the dreamer. Let's, let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. And Reuben, who was slightly more compassionate than the others, and emphasis on slightly, <laughs> decided that it would be be- they'd be better served just throwing him in a pit. So that's what they did. They threw him in a pit. And the Bible doesn't say what happened to Reuben. Maybe he went to the bathroom. Maybe he went for lunch. I'm not sure. But there was a moment where he was away from his brothers. And some Ishmaelite traders came. And Judah, the fourth brother, said, hey, here's an opportunity. If we kill our brother, we don't get anything for him. But we can trade him. We can sell him as a slave to these, to these Ishmaelite traders. And that's what they do. And they make up a story that some fierce animal attacked Joseph. And Joseph is, from those traders, is sold into slavery to a man named Potiphar, who was a high-ranking official in Egypt. And because the hand of God was on Joseph's life, Joseph quickly rose to prominence, and um, Potiphar trusted him with the affairs of his household. But one day, Potiphar's wife, who had her eye on Joseph, made a move on him. And being an honorable man that he was, he ran away. And this woman grabbed his, his robe and made up a story that he had tried to attack her. And so Potiphar threw Joseph in prison. And at this point, Joseph's pain is that his very own brothers have turned their back on him and sold him into slavery. He's unjustly in slavery, but now after working really hard and showing himself to be uh, an honorable man, now he's falsely accused and sent to prison. And while in prison, there's two men, a cupbearer and a baker. And they have a dream. Both of them have a dream. And Joseph has the skill by God to interpret dreams. And he interprets both men's dreams. And he tells these men that the cupbearer in three days will be promoted back to Pharaoh's court. He'll retain his position, but the baker is going to be hanged in three days. And sure enough, in three days, that's exactly what happens. And Joseph's last words to the cupbearer, his last words are, don't forget me here in prison. I've been unjustly accused. I shouldn't be here. Just don't forget me. And two long years pass, and the cupbearer forgets him. Until one day, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time, has a dream. And in the dream, there are seven cows that are plump cows, healthy cows. And there are seven sickly cows. And the seven sickly cows swallow up the seven plump cows. And suddenly the cupbearer remembers this interpreter who had saved his life. And he says, bring in Joseph. So Joseph comes. 
hears the dreams, interprets the dreams. He says the seven cows that are healthy represent seven years of prosperity in this land, of abundance, of overflow, of overflow, of surplus. But the seven sickly cows represent seven years of famine. That'll come after that. So Pharaoh, you need to appoint a man who's skilled and wise to in those years of famine to save some of that grain so that during the seven years of uh, I'm sorry, in seven years of harvest to save some of that grain so that during the seven years of famine, there's leftover grain. Pharaoh says, you're the guy to do it. So he promotes Joseph to second of, in command over all of Egypt. And at this point, we can see God's hand, God's providence over this story. Because while that famine happens, the famine happens all over the, that part of the world, and Jacob sends his sons to Egypt, and they've long forgotten about Joseph, as has Jacob. Jacob thinks he's, his son is dead, and so Jacob sends all his sons except his youngest, Benjamin. And the sons show up not knowing who they're talking to, not knowing that the very man that they're asking for grain is the man who they sold into slavery. And Joseph wants to test their hearts. He wants to see where they're at 22 years later after they had abandoned him, after they had sold him into slavery. And so Joseph sends them away with grain, but he tells them, he detains the second oldest, Simeon, and says, you can't come back until you bring the youngest son, Benjamin. So Jacob is not going to give over his youngest son. He's already lost Joseph, at least he thinks. And so when you're hungry enough, though, and there's years of famine, he had no choice. He sends his sons back to Egypt And they appear before Joseph with Benjamin. And so Joseph puts a silver cup into the sack of the youngest son, Benjamin, sends them away. The brothers don't know. He sends his servant after the brothers. And the servant says, hey, one of you guys has a silver cup of my master in your sack. And they say, no, 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 there's no way. I mean, we've come just to get grain. You've been so generous to us. We would never do something like that. And they open up all the sacks, and sure enough, the silver cup is in Benjamin's sack. They bring the brothers before Joseph, and Joseph says, this is what I'll do. You all, you all can go, but I need Benjamin to stay with me. And Judah, the very brother who had betrayed Joseph, who it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery, falls down and pleads for mercy and says, Joseph, you don't understand if, well, he doesn't know it's Joseph, but he says, you don't understand if we go back with my, without my brother, Benjamin, my father's going to die. Take my life instead. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 45. Joseph has dealt with the pain of his suffering by forgetting it. And we know that because Joseph named his son Manasseh Forget. That's what the name Manasseh means. It means forget. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. But here, the source of Joseph's pain, his brothers are right in his face, and he can no longer forget the pain that they've caused him. He sees them. He sees Judah pleading for his brother's mercy, and he's moved. He can't control his emotions. He weeps so loud that Pharaoh and all of Pharaoh's house hears him crying. And this, this pain of his brother's betrayal of 22 years separated from his father, of his mother, Rachel, dying without him being there or even knowing, now is too much for him to bear. I would suggest that oftentimes we have difficulty honoring each other because of the pain we've experienced. 
It's hard to speak life into a teen when every teen you see is a reminder of your son or daughter who's no longer following God. It's hard to ask someone older to disciple you when every older person who was supposed to be there for you abandoned you. How is... How can two generations, the older and the younger, move beyond this pain so that we honor each other and be healed and reconciled of our pain? We need a revelation of God's pain, the purpose of it. See, God doesn't cause pain. He's not the author of pain. Pain is the result of sin. It's an effect of sin. But God will use our pain to position us. And God was using Joseph's pain to position him, to place him in a position of honor. He used the pain of his brother's betrayal, the pain of an adulterous woman's accusations, the pain of a cupbearer's absent-mindedness to bring him to a position of second-in-command over all of Egypt. What does Joseph do with this position of honor? He doesn't lord it over his brothers. He brings them in close proximity. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph's not sweeping what his brothers did underneath the rug. He acknowledges the pain that they've caused him. And if we're going to move beyond pain and and receive the healing redemption of God, we got to be honest about what's happened to us in our past. But everything inside of us wants to run from this pain. But Joseph invited his his brothers, the source of his pain, close so that they could see the transformation, so they could get an up-close and personal view of what God had done in his life. We don't have to go back into abusive relationships. That's not what I'm suggesting today or going back to the people who have pained you if you're in some kind of danger but we can bring those people in close close proximity to God. We can allow God, we can bring God in close, close proximity to our pain by inviting him in the midst of our pain. We can allow him to transform it. We can allow him to redeem it. We can allow him to change our story, to go from weeping and mourning to shouts of deliverance and joy. God used the pain Joseph experienced to position him, not just to bring his brothers close, but to preserve the very people who had caused him pain. He says in verse 5, Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Later, he says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. See, Joseph realized that God had sent him to this position. God had positioned him to preserve his family. But not just his family, to preserve an entire nation that would be of Israel. Some of you today find yourself in desolate places. You find yourself in places of famine, like Egypt during those seven years. You're looking at God and wondering why you are at where you're at. And perhaps it wasn't those people who hurt you that put you there in this position. Perhaps it wasn't the dad who wasn't there that's placed you in this position. Perhaps it wasn't that boss who got you fired. Perhaps it wasn't that wife or husband that you can no longer stand. Perhaps it was God who positioned you to preserve life around you. Today, look up 
at the people around you, the people God has placed around you so that you can preserve their life. Maybe God has positioned you in a place of famine so that you can bring life and sustenance and preservation to those who desperately need it. God used the dishonor Joseph experienced to save the lives of those who dishonored him. And then Joseph tells his brothers that he will provide for them and his dad in Goshen. I mean, you, you can't miss this point. That these brothers who 22 years of hardship they caused him, not only does he spare them, not, not only does he show them mercy, but he provides for them. This is a picture of grace. I'm not going to just sentence you to death like you deserve. I want you to come to Egypt in the best land of Goshen, and I want you to eat from my table. I want you to be provided for. I want to make sure that I care for you and all 70 members of my family. He says, hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all his house and ruler over all of Egypt. Come down for me. Do not tarry. You can see the excitement after so many years of being disappointed so many years of being separated from his dad, he asked them to come and to bring the fa his father, Jacob, so that he can provide for them. Jacob was a wealthy individual. God had blessed him with crops and livestock, and he was a picture of the blessing of God. And yet now in, this, in these years of famine, his son is going to provide for him. Now you who have kids will recognize the irony in this. Nobody ever has kids for a financial investment. <laughs> you pay for their diapers. You pay $1,000 for their AAU sports teams. You pay for their college tuition. And then when they graduate, you think you've finally graduated of paying for them. You end up still paying for their meals when they come back and their vacations and their flights. <laughs> but you know, one day, they'll pay for you. They'll provide for you in your old age. And we as a younger generation have inherited so much for so many of you who have given to make this building possible, who have served in the parking lot and hospitality, who have been faithful to raise up another generation. And one day, we will have the privilege of providing for you. We'll be the ones going to the hospital to visit you. We'll be the ones surrounding you in prayer. We'll be the ones pastoring your kids and your grandkids. Joseph used his position of honor to bring his family in close proximity, to preserve their lives and ultimately to provide for them. And in honoring his father, he allowed his father the privilege, Jacob, of providing perspective for his life. And that's this last portion in Genesis chapter 49. This is Jacob on his deathbed. He's speaking a blessing over all of his sons. And this is only possible because Joseph brought him near. But Jacob has the unique perspective as a father. Only he can give this blessing to his sons. And he comes to Joseph and he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. And the picture here is like a tree with branches and the tree has been surrounded by walls. And that was a picture of Joseph's current situation. He'd been surrounded by all these obstacles and all these people who had treated him illy. But his branch had extended over that wall. And Jacob provided a perspective for Joseph that Joseph didn't have. Ja Jacob talks about his present, his future, and his past. 
He says about his past in verse 23, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. What he's saying is he's, he's providing Joseph an understanding of what happened to him in his past. You know, so many of us, we have things that happen to us, whether it's as children, a father walking out on us, or a sexual abuse, or deep pains, or a word that somebody spoke over us that we don't know how to process, we don't know how to deal with until somebody older helps define what happened to us, helps put that in proper perspective that allows us to heal from that moment. And that's what Jacob is doing. He's providing a perspective for his son. He's saying, even though these archers, your brothers, bitterly attacked you, God had had his hand steadying your bow. And we need to hear from an older generation that God's sovereign hand has been over our lives, even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of our struggles, that God has been watching over us and caring for us. He speaks to his future in the last few verses of this blessing. He says, the God of your father will help you by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. He goes on to bless Joseph, this future blessing. And this is the role of the older generation, to reach down to the younger generation and to tell them who they're going to be in God. People like Pastor Brad and Pastor Jim who've told me, You're a man of God. You're called to preach this gospel. Young people, our teens and college students who elders have come alongside of them, who older saints in this church have come alongside of them and called them up and told them that they're going to be great, told them that they're going to go farther in their walk with God, told them they're going to help win this city for Jesus, that they have a purpose here on this earth. The older generation has a unique perspective to define the younger generation, their present, their past, and their uh, future. You know, as beautiful as the story is of Joseph and Jacob and the story of redemption and the two generations honoring each other, it's an imperfect picture. Joseph was a prideful young man, and some of his pride led to some of the difficulties that he had. Jacob was known as a deceiver. That's what his name literally means. He had a history of deceiving others. But their story is a shadow of a more perfect picture, the perfect picture of two generations honoring each other. And that's a picture of Jesus Christ and the Father. Jesus is the better Joseph. See, in this story, we want to be Joseph, the one who has endured all this suffering and God rescues us and promotes us to this position of honor. But in reality, we're not Joseph. We're the brothers. We're the ones who have abandoned Jesus. We're the ones who our sins have put him on the cross. We're the ones who turned our back on him because of our sinful lives. And yet Jesus on that cross endured the suffering that we deserved. And he brought us near to be forgiven and to be set free. Jesus is our better Joseph. And the father, And when Jesus was baptized, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he looked at his son and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He defined his son. And that is the picture. The younger generation honoring the older generation, recognizing that we're only here because of your wisdom and your faithfulness. The older generation reaching down and pulling the younger generation up. This is a picture of walking together in honor. I want to show you one last picture here. This is on my 12th birthday. My dad surprised me took me to Olive Garden and had some men from this church 
Speak life over me. Tell me who I was. Define who I was. And this is a picture of what we're called to do, to honor each other. And as an older generation, to lift up the younger generation. Amen. Let's pray.